Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a new report sheds light on the economic disparities among the state's different cultural groups, and we focus on upcoming NCAA tournaments in Minnesota. But first... Minnesota's projected $1.5 billion budget surplus is a good thing for special interests that want more state funding, but it probably complicates things for lawmakers who have to decide between competing groups, and it will likely make it more difficult for Governor-elect Tim Walls to push a gas tax increase through the legislature. And there's even a complicating factor beyond that. MNN's Bill Werner tells us, Scott, the additional monkey wrench in the political machinery is that many economists are predicting an economic slowdown in the next year or so. Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz elaborates. Most of the best forecasts are saying that this incredibly long economic run that the United States has been on since 2009, 2010, is going to come to an end sometime um, in either late 2019 or sometime in 2020, perhaps at the end of this current biennium, if not perhaps into the next biennial forecast. Warnings were sounded this week in committee by longtime State Representative Jim Knobloch, Republican from St. Cloud, the outgoing chairman of the powerful Ways and Means Committee. Knobloch underlined an unpleasant time not that long ago in Minnesota's state budget history. If you look back at the November 2006 economic forecast, just before the housing market crashed, triggering the Great Recession. We had pretty close to right around a $2 billion surplus uh, at that time. And one year later, things had changed quite a bit. There was new spending passed in the 2007 legislature, and one year later, we had a you know $1.6 billion deficit. You look to the November 2008 forecast, and the projected revenue had gone down another $500 million. Uh, spending was about the same, but now we were at a $2.2 billion deficit for that biennium just two years later. Things can change very, very quickly, even in a year. And so as we look to an economy where we do see a few storm clouds perhaps on the horizon, I just wanted to bring up this history so people have it in mind. Does anyone have any questions on this? Uh, Representative Hirschhouse. One thing I would um, comment on here is that we might be in a much healthier circumstance, uh, this time with a larger budget reserve and cash amount available. Clearly, I think, I mean, we have more money now in our budget reserve than we've ever had, and uh, it was uh, more than we had back then. But as you can see, the $2 billion, $75 million we have in the budget reserve uh, wouldn't cover all this if we uh, face something like this again. We explore that further with Hamlin University's David Schultz. Minnesota has a rainy day budget reserve, uh, and that gets accumulated based on a, a, a certain amount per surplus. Uh, any surplus is, is required to be directed in that, and it, it keeps on building up. It's at about $2 billion now. Correct. Uh, is that enough? Is that enough insulation or cushion? Well, it's interesting. If we were to go to the private sector and we were to look at a lot of businesses in terms of how they do budgeting, um, you would see anywhere from, let us say, 5%, in some cases, a 10% contingency. Look at a lot of, let's say, construction projects. And the reason why I mention that is that if we were to go with 
general private sector standards in terms of trying to build in contingencies or rainy day funds, the state of Minnesota is still below what we would see mostly in the private sector. So at $2 billion or $2.5 billion, we're not looking at anything in terms of um, really large um, that would help us, especially if we want into, let's say, a mild recession or think in terms of another scenario. What if there was a significant and prolonged um, impasse at the federal level um, where the federal government shuts down or there's just a major disagreement on budget and funding, which is not an impossibility with the Democrats taking over the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, Minnesota could face a potential um, shortfall of billions of dollars in a situation like that. Professor, that said, realistically, and you've been looking at the politics of this for a long time, uh, how much of that do you think lawmakers take into consideration, given the pressure uh, Governor like Wall just said he's going to propose a gas tax increase. Republicans in the Minnesota Senate are talking about uh, income tax reductions, bracket reductions. Um, do, do they do lawmakers heed this warning or not? They generally don't. Seeing a budget surplus is like the proverbial little kid in the candy store, and it becomes very, very attractive for legislators to do a variety of different things. Hamlin University analyst David Schultz. A lot of factors will play into what lawmakers do with a projected, that is, a not-for-sure $1.5 billion budget surplus. But one key item that we need to keep in mind when making any predictions about legislators' behavior in the fast-approaching 2019 session is that they will not be up for re-election until the year after. But that, of course, is a presidential election year. Also this week, tears at the state capitol as a group of mostly Democratic lawmakers heard from Minnesotans affected by the high cost of insulin. My son would still be alive today if, if, if his treatment was affordable. James Holt Jr.'s 25-year-old son died because he had to ration insulin. Nicole Smith-Holt says to get health insurance, it would have cost her son $450 a month with a $7,600 deductible. I can imagine how scary it was for Alec to leave that pharmacy without his life-saving insulin. And he left that day because he did not have the $1,300 that the pharmacist was charging him for, for insulin and supplies. Senate Democrats are pressuring Republicans to pass a bill as soon as possible in the 2019 session. Senator Chris Eaton from Brooklyn Center. You would think that eventually everybody's going to see the, the insane immorality of this. If people need something to live, it shouldn't be unaffordable. Anoka Senator Jim Abler, the lone Republican participating in this week's listening session at the state capitol. For us to do nothing in the face of what we have known for some time would be just wrong, and so uh, so count me in. Other Republican leaders have not been available for comment. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. 
they've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The latest numbers are out on the economic status of Minnesotans. The report provides a glimpse of the state's 17 largest cultural groups. I recently spoke with state demographer Susan Brower about the report and what it means for Minnesotans. Rather than looking at Minnesota by broad racial groups, we look at specific uh, communities that are important here in Minnesota. So we look at social and economic conditions of the Hmong community in Minnesota, for example, the Somali community and the Mexican community distinctly uh, from their broader racial groups. And one of the aims of this is just to get a good sense of how these groups are faring, where there are barriers to full employment, where there are barriers to steady income or to economic stability more generally. And so we, we take a lot of different kind of angles to look at different factors of these groups just to get an overall look. And Susan, tell me a little bit about what is some of the most significant information you found out through the report? So we find, for example, that the largest, not surprisingly, the largest group in Minnesota is white non-Hispanic at 4.3 million, but then the second largest uh, are U.S.-born African Americans at about 182,000. Um, shortly, closely behind African Americans are Mexican Minnesotans at about 178,000. So just kind of defining who's here and um, to which cultural group uh, they belong is is a step kind of in the right direction of understanding how they're faring. And with regard to economic disparities amongst the groups in Minnesota, what are some of the significant findings in the report with regard to economics? Well, if we look at the share of people who are outside of the labor force, I think those some of those findings explain for us where the disparities lie. We see a large proportion of African-American, Somali, and Hmong outside of the labor force. You know, we've seen unemployment rates come down in recent years as the economy has grown. But the question is, what are the barriers for some groups to enter the labor force to begin with? And what we do in the report is look at many different aspects like age to try to figure out kind of what might this group have going on in addition to potential labor force participation. Some of the disparities that we see manifest in educational attainment. And we look at educational attainment, the share without high school degree or GED of uh, working age adults. And we see a higher proportion of some of our newer immigrants that don't have a high school diploma, including Mexican Minnesotans and Somali Minnesotans, compared to about 3% of white Minnesotans. So, you know, these aren't disparities that are surprising to us at this point. This is something that people have been working on for some time. They continue to manifest themselves 
even as we're looking at these individual cultural groups. We talked a little bit about some of the key findings. Was there anything in here that really stood out to you and surprised you? You know, I would say as um, an extension of the, the kind of first round of report that we did a couple of years ago that was very similar to this one, I think it's clear that uh, the disparities we see are not only um, being driven by new waves of immigration. I know many times people will think that that is why we see the disparities and that groups that are new to the U.S. will eventually find a stronger foothold and fare better uh, the longer they're in the U.S. and the more educational opportunities they have. Uh, But I think when we look across some of the disparities, and we look at some of the groups that have been here in the U.S. for a very long time or have been here, you know, for their whole lives or for generations, we still do see um, large disparities among cultural groups of color compared with white non-Hispanic Minnesotans. And tell me, Susan, what do we do with this information then moving forward? Is this something that our lawmakers take a closer look at, and does it impact laws that we may see in the near future, or what happens next? I would hope that lawmakers and state leaders, you know, across uh, the nonprofit and philanthropic and um, corporate sectors would take a look at this and consider more the context uh, that we're in today. Um, In particular, um, you know, it's a very tight labor market. Employers are having a very hard time finding workers for jobs really across the skill spectrum. Um, And I think this report sheds some light on the um, conditions that would um, remove some of the barriers to work for some cultural groups. And so, you know, I think that's, that's um, it's adding kind of a layer of complexity, but hopefully um, some helpful starting points to help uh, move these disparities in the right direction, which is um, away or to zero. <laughs> And Susan, if we have listeners out there who maybe want to find out and dig a little bit deeper into the report, can they find it somewhere online? Absolutely. It's on our website, and our website is mn.gov forward slash demography. Thanks again to my guest, state demographer Susan Brower. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The NCAA Volleyball Final Four is happening this weekend at Target Center in Minneapolis. Nebraska, Illinois, BYU, and Stanford are the four teams involved. The hometown Golden Gophers were ranked second in the country but suffered an upset loss last week to knock them out of the field. MNN's J.W. Cox spoke with Matt Munir, who is the director of Sports Minneapolis. Munir says while not having the Gophers in the four-team field is a disappointment for fans, it won't ruin the weekend for organizers. Based off of uh, some data that we have in terms of zip codes from tickets purchased outside of Minnesota, we've got over 11,600 out-of-town visitors that are planning trips to Minneapolis, which is fantastic. So uh, based on an economic impact calculator we uh, utilize, we're projecting over an $11 million economic impact of this event. When you compare events side by side, as obviously you're working with a lot of things, the release mentioning all the different events that are coming here over the next few years, 
what does hosting a volleyball or how does hosting the volleyball championship compare in scope to what's needed and what happens with other championships and sporting events that have been hosted recently and are on the schedule? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for us, uh, each event is unique, obviously, but certainly there's a lot of carryover and similarities, particularly with NCAA championships. So, uh, for example, the NCAA men's Frozen Four, which was just held in St. Paul earlier this year, they do a red carpet arrival for the two championship teams prior to the championship night. Uh, we're doing a similar thing for the two championship teams to the volleyball uh, championship on Saturday night. So there are similarities um, amongst the different NCAA championships, but for us, it's just such a unique opportunity. This event hasn't been held in, Min in Minneapolis for, it'll literally be 30 years since the last time NCAA Volleyball was held in Minneapolis. So for us, it's a really unique opportunity uh, to showcase that we are a championship host city, that volleyball is uh, incredibly important and meaningful here to our region, and uh, we're, we just can't wait to host, really. And, Matt, I know you worked on the bid to get this event here. What makes Target Center itself, where they'll be held, an attractive venue for the volleyball championships? And then outside of that, in a broader scope, what makes the Twin Cities an attractive stop for the NCAA in these types of events? Yeah, so one of the reasons maybe why we haven't hosted this event in a while is because we've been waiting for the timing to be right. And now with the Target Center, you know, over $150 million renovation uh, going into that facility, we really pitched it to the NCAA that, look, this is a premier championship NBA and WNBA caliber arena, and so we couldn't think of a, a more perfect place to showcase this exciting championship than a newly remodeled uh, NBA, WNBA arena. So that was really exciting with all, uh, not only the, you know, um, fan amenity improvements that have been um, that have undergone at Target Center with, you know, the new scoreboard, the new seats, the improved concourses, the new atrium. Uh, it's really an exciting venue, but then also a lot of back-of-the-house stuff was improved. So operationally, those are things that maybe the public doesn't care about a whole lot, but the NCAA and their operational team cares a lot about, you know, how many loading docks do you have? What's the back-of-the-house space like? So with the improvements that were made in those areas, that really helped us a lot as well. Um, really, one thing that we always find um, that our clients appreciate is that really the downtown urban footprint that we have in Minneapolis, the proximity of the venues to the hotels where fans can literally walk from their hotel to a restaurant, to a bar, to some shopping, and then walk to the game and back is really an attractive uh, component for a lot of these event organizers. And the fact, you know, that our convention center is also located in downtown, only about a mile from Target Center. There's a huge volleyball coaches convention that takes place in conjunction with this championship. So we're going to have about probably 2,800 total volleyball coaches from around the country here as well, hosting their convention at the Minneapolis Convention Center. So um, to have everyone in downtown, there's going to be just a lot of buzz uh, with out-of-town visitors. You know, you mentioned why is volleyball important in this region. You know, we've got one of the most, uh, one of the highest um, youth participation rates in volleyball, uh, and it starts kind of at the grassroots level and kind of works its way up. You know, the North Country region volleyball uh, footprint is, is huge, and so we're seeing a lot of youth, um, you know, participate in volleyball, and that really resonates. All right, Matt, anything else that I missed that you might want to add? For us, this is just part of a cycle of hosting uh, NCAA championships on a regular basis, you know, 
Obviously, there was uh, the men's Frozen Four in St. Paul earlier this year, the women's Frozen Four is in Minneapolis. You know, next year we have the men's uh, Final Four at the stadium. 2020, we have NCAA Wrestling. 21, we have the NCAA Men's Basketball Regional. And then 2022, we have the NCAA Women's Final Four, which actually has a lot of similarities to this championship in terms of the number of ancillary events. So for us, this is really a pivotal event, you know, um, kind of kick-starting a run of consecutive NCAA championships uh, through 2022 and hopefully beyond. That's MN's J.W. Cox with Matt Munir, the director of Sports Minneapolis. Minnesota Matters will return after this. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play, like, a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do, like, that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. With the NCAA Volleyball Final Four taking place and wrapping up this weekend at Target Center, the next big focus for local organizers will be the 2019 NCAA Men's Basketball Final Four. That's now less than four months away at U.S. Bank Stadium. Kate Mortensen is the CEO of the local organizing committee for the Minnesota Final Four. She sat down with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm late last week and told him that sign-up to be one of about 2,000 needed welcoming volunteers is underway. So we'll have uh, some opportunities as early as April 1st, but most of the action will begin uh, April 5th, which is a Friday, and continue through April 8th, which is the championship game on Monday. There's been a lot of talk over the years when Minnesota hosts an event that these volunteers are so informed, uh, they take their job seriously, and out-of-towners come in and say, man, I can't believe how nice everybody is, and I'm assuming that uh, you want that same thing here for this event. The fact is that Minnesota is tops in the nation for volunteering, and our people love to come out. They love to help and reflect the warm welcome uh, and and have the spirit of uh, welcome into our downtown Minneapolis. We really have exemplary volunteers, and we're really excited to bring them together for the Final Four. So if I'm listening right now and I want to volunteer, how can I uh, at least get my name in the hopper to potentially be part of it? On Final4Minneapolis.com, sign up and select shifts. We will continue to add shifts. We will continue to add names to that volunteer database and programming into the coming weeks. There will be a wait list, so I would say whenever you hear this message is the right time to go to Final4Minneapolis.com. Now, we're about four months, roughly, from Final Four weekend. Uh, kind of take me through the process. I know you and I talked, uh, well, it, it probably is longer than a year ago, even, uh, when this first all started. And so I know the process. You were in Phoenix, was it, one year, and uh, learning and, 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 and figuring out how you want to do it. Now we're getting to crunch time, right? 
we definitely are getting into crunch time. So our journey here in Minneapolis started back in 2015 when we went to the Indianapolis Final Four as a future host inside their kind of learning program, which has been extremely helpful. Uh, we attended Houston, then Phoenix, then San Antonio, and really feel at this point that we are ready to be 120 days out or so uh, from the big weekend and uh, in partnership with the NCAA have put together a wonderful program of events and activities. What kind of things uh, between now and that weekend now take place as you hit crunch time? And maybe some of it is, is behind-the-scenes stuff that some people might find compelling, I suppose, in terms of getting ready. Absolutely. Well, one of the big moments for us was the U.S. Bank Stadium Classic, which occurred uh, last weekend inside U.S. Bank Stadium. That was a requirement to host a basketball event inside that venue uh, prior to the Final Four. And that was a beautiful and fun event. It was scaled for a, a smaller crowd crowd, of course, than the 72,000 that we'll have for the Final Four games. Uh, But some of the other activities to come are, of course, the launch of our volunteer program. And then in January, we do a very uh, big press event with all our friends from the NCAA in town to make final announcement of all of the programs that are free, accessible to everybody, uh, and that can be enjoyed by the whole community, even around the games. I know some of that is a surprise, but are are there some things you can tell us about what uh, fans can look forward to in terms of uh, interaction? Even if they maybe can't get a ticket to any of the games, they're going to be able to take part in Final Four fun, right? Well, first of all, I would say that tickets to the games... They are available. It's true it's a tough ticket to obtain, but they are available, and I encourage folks, if they're thinking about what they might do around spring break time, this is the year to stay in town. Uh, Take that cookie jar of of funds you've saved up and invest in an experience of a lifetime. What um, kind of impact? I know there's been studies in terms of economic impact, and then how many visitors are you expecting for that weekend that that aren't from Minnesota that will come join us? Mm -hmm. Well, we we have some good uh, pre-information from an economic impact impact report that says that that we can project about $142 million of extra spending into our economy based on this Final Four. And that will come from about 90,000 visitors who will join all the rest of us because we're all going to be downtown enjoying this experience as well. But those visitors will stay in our hotels, they'll buy merchandise, enjoy our restaurants, and just uh, perhaps mark their calendar for a future visit to Minnesota. Last one, um, give us the webpage again in terms of people want to try to get their name in the hopper to be volunteers. And then what kind of roles generally um, can one expect if they are going to volunteer for this? So the details are sign-up begins December 10 at noon. You will be able to log in, register, and select shifts at the very same time uh, to be a volunteer in our volunteer program. We'll need more than 2,000 volunteers for all kinds of uh, different welcoming activities, beginning at the airport. As soon as people arrive, that's the beginning of their Minnesota experience. So we'll have folks at the airport to assist and then um, helping people find their way into downtown. And then once they're in downtown, welcoming them at hotels, uh, being able to provide information and maps to the different events. And then also at the events, ensuring that the kids, the families, the visitors, the fans have a great experience of Minneapolis. It's going to be fun. Thanks so much. Good luck. Thank you, Mike. That's MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm with Kate Mortensen, the CEO of the 2019 Minneapolis Final Four Local Organizing Committee. The Final Four will take place at U.S. Bank Stadium April 5th through the 8th. Again, the webpage for more information is final4minneapolis.com. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.